from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, can advanced recycling solve the plastic waste crisis? A business eye view of the Inflation Reduction Act. Why employee well-being needs to be part of ESG. How climate tech startups can survive the downturn. And surviving the UK's heat wave. Is it hot in here or is it August? This week on 350. It's August the 5th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, getting ready to head west, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings, Joel. I'm very much looking forward to seeing you next week in person and actually recording this in person. Yay! Absolutely. Yeah, in, in the Green Biz office, the new improved Green Biz office. Which I have so, not seen. <laughs> so, which you haven't seen, yeah, and almost nobody has. So next week, uh, the entire Green Biz crew, about 53 or 55 strong, uh, will be coming together uh, for the first time, and really for the first time for a lot of folks, because we have about, I don't know, 20 new people who you know we haven't met or spent any time in person with. We've met them online, of course. Thank you, Zoom. Um, and uh, we're going to do a strategic offsite get together bonding exercise and just hanging out and having some great meals together. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about that. And of course, to see you, Heather. Likewise, and I have to figure out what the weather is like because it's been hot and humid here, and I don't believe it's been that way in, in Oakland, California. So uh, I'm looking forward to a little bit of a respite, um, the dog days of summer. <laughs> as we as we advise pretty much any time of the year here in the Bay Area, dress for three seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can had, figure out which three. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I had heard. I actually heard a t- new term this week that I hadn't heard before, but I totally got it, which was foggest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, we have we and that, along with that is Juniary. Mm. Uh, we have the, the well, we have the June gloom. We're, we're starting pretty much uh, Memorial Day uh, through Labor Day, otherwise known as summer. Uh, mm-hmm. We get the fog in the morning, and it burns off. If you're lucky, if you if you live in Oakland, it usually burns off by. 10, 11, 12, certainly by noon. Then you have mm-hmm. a nice, mild, sunny day, which it's been gorgeous here. If you live in parts of San Francisco, uh, in the ironically named Sunset neighborhood, among others, you never see the sun in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, yeah, next week is going to be great. Uh, looking forward to that and seeing everybody, meeting the new folks. But let's move back to this week in review. How about I start us with one of your pieces from this week, uh, Joel, which is your great uh, overview of advanced recycling. Woo, do, do. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, in all seriousness, um, I appreciated this feature that you did on advanced recycling and its role, the role that it plays in addressing the plastic waste crisis. Um, what I love about this piece is that, number one, you helped me realize what that term means because I've heard of chemical recycling and molecular recycling. And uh, obviously this, 
there's mechanical recycling. Um, this kind of sets the stage for just understanding the all of the different technologies that are playing a role in addressing our waste, particularly plastic waste. Um, I remember when you visited um, Eastman a couple of years ago and did did the piece about that uh, facility out there, which they were investing heavily in. And this this is a great update to that, but but way beyond. So just wondering what got you all heated up about this particular story and and you know what what you learned along the way yeah advanced recycling because beginning and intermediate recycling just isn't cutting it so <laughs> uh, no i mean uh, as we all know uh, painfully aware uh, particularly when it comes to plastic we're just you know still it's like 9 or 10% of uh, plastic gets recycled that may just be the 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 bottles and and jugs and the you know the easy stuff the you know PET and HDPE numbers 1 and 2 uh, it doesn't include a whole range of, of of other things you know medical waste and manufacturing waste and 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 just you know all sorts of things that uh, uh, that are plastic that are just land being landfilled or incinerated and along comes this technology or set of actually more than a hundred different technologies called, uh, you know, lumped together as advanced recycling, that is able to take those mixed plastics, depolymerize them uh, down to their molecular level, and create uh, what they call virgin quality plastics. Uh, you know, and can do that over and over. So it's really is the circular economy for plastics. Uh, and, and, you know, as I put in the article, sort of a, the brass ring we've all been waiting for. What what I loved about it is, first of all, that, uh, how much is being invested. All the major plastic companies and chemical companies, uh, you know, Dow and BASF and Eastman and Sabic, um, ExxonMobil Chemical and, and others are investing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even billions in building these plants. What I really like about them is that it sits, it can sit right next to mechanical recycling. So mechanical recycling is what, when we put stuff out on the curb, um, gets picked up and hopefully goes through a process where it gets uh, ground up into uh, little pieces and then um, turned back into uh, recycled uh, PET in the case of water bottles. And, and, and there's limits to that, but it is uh, in terms of the number of times a uh, plastic can go through that process. But it is very efficient and does work really well with, uh, again, plastics number one and two. Nobody wants to touch that process. What advanced recycling can do is sit next to that, literally, and, and they're building some plants now, um, one in France, uh, that, that will have both mechanical and advanced recycling. So advanced can take everything else. And so now you have sort of a total solution set here that can take uh, any kind of plastic and and turn it back into monomers that become the building blocks of polymers and, and ultimately into the plastics uh, that we uh, need and, and uh, if don't love, at least uh, tolerate. So uh, this is uh, early days, except it's uh, we're, it's been around for a long time, but it, we're just getting to the inflection point where this, as I said, you know, Countless millions or billions are being invested in these plants around the world, and and uh, as Dow 
uh, put it, uh, Dow, the formerly known as Dow Chemical, they're now a materials science company, said this is our growth strategy. There's a $5 billion opportunity for Dow in this. Um, so that's a huge opportunity that not just Dow, but all these companies see in front of them, solving a problem problem that we all know has been heretofore intractable. Yep. Uh, and I appreciated, especially what you just mentioned was the relationship between the different approaches and how we need to be investing all of them. Um, there has been tension in the past. You know, you, you talk about, oh, this in infrastructure, and there always seemed to be like fighting between this this versus that, mechanical versus whatever you want to call it, chemical, et cetera, advanced now. And I love that we seem to have more cooperation going on. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the big uh, obstacles or barriers that they face is on the policy front. Just do we have enough policies to to encourage um, also to regulate uh, these uh, these uh, advanced recycling operations as manufacturing, which means they have to meet the same kinds of criteria for health and safety environment and, and other things as manufacturing facilities. The industry actually seems to want that kind of legislation. About 20 states already have that in the U.S., and, and the EU has some uh, legislation that's supporting uh, advanced recycling. So policy is a big piece of this. But let's use that as a segue to another piece of policy that I think everybody knows about, a little something we call the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. We've run... Uh, several articles this week, as as you might expect, about that and um, and the implications, uh, not just for the act and not just for business, but particularly for the climate tech companies. Uh, Heather, that's your beat. What did you learn? Well, so uh, our newest member of the editorial team, Leah Garden, took a look at some of the tax credits that are in that could be in part of this. So I was, I'm saying could be because it hasn't passed yet, like, and we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, she basically, uh, I love both of the approach she took because she really just put a lot, a lot of questions in place. Um, what's the, you know, what does the pipeline project, the um, part of this look like? Because that's a big part of it. What does the uh, investment mean for manufacturing? Um, another uh, key part of this will be a uh, the construction of manufacturing for wind turbines and solar panels in the United States uh, to to reduce our dependence on on the uh, you know the imports that we're getting particularly from China. So there's a lot of different proposed investments. Um, our other person who wrote extensively about this this week and I love his his piece um, was Vartan Badalian who is our transportation analyst. And so there's a big chunk of EV-related incentives, particularly extending consumer-related uh, incentives for people to be able to buy electric vehicles, um, charging infrastructure beyond that, and so forth. So the, the, there are tons and tons of, of uh, different little dollar buckets, if you will, in this for, for, for everyone. <laughs> 725 pages long. Um, we have yet to see what will happen, what will be, what will remain, what, you know, one of the most contentious things um, is is the minimum corporate tax that's part of this. So lots and lots of different things to, to talk about. Um, I think what one of the things that uh, particularly struck you, and I, and I want to punt it over to you, was sort of what, what happens now with corporations, right? So this thing is out there. What do 
the folks in the green biz community, what do corporations and corporate sustainability professionals really need to be doing to get this thing passed? Like, how do we get this passed pronto? Yeah, there was a great cheer and maybe a sigh of relief on the part of a lot, probably most people in sustainability and pr just a lot of humans, I think, uh, who are, are thoughtful and, and, and understand the risks that climate uh, is posing for us. When the, the deal was struck, but this is a long way from from pay dirt here. We're a long way from this actually being signed into law by President Biden. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, my friend and our, our, our longtime colleague, uh, Bill Weil, who's the founder and executive director of a nonprofit called Climate Voice. Full disclosure, I am on the board of Climate Voice. Uh, wrote a piece for us uh, this week uh, talking about what business needs to do to get this across the finish line. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the fact that uh, companies in general have stayed on the sidelines when it comes to, to climate legislation with just a handful of sort of the usual suspects who, who speak up. Uh, regularly, Salesforce and, and, and is one that comes to mind and several others. Um, but there's a lot that business needs to be do uh, needs to be doing here. Uh, lobbying for clean energy, pro climate legislation, uh, stepping away from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers, both of which, you know, have have adamantly and ferociously attacked the Build Back Better Act, and and are, and are both of which have announced their opposition to the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, less than 24 hours after it was rolled out, uh, Bill points out, and. And, and then just keeping up a drumbeat of public statements around climate policy. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it needs to happen. And so, you know, CEO blogs and op-eds, press announcements, social media, speeches and TV interviews to keep up the pressure for public policy to address this, the need for, uh, for what this act contains. As imperfect as it may be, it is still landmark and would be a major advancement, uh, at least on the part of the United States, and I would say the world, uh, in, in addressing the climate crisis and a major disaster, I think, um, politically and otherwise, if it doesn't. So uh, companies need to step up, stand up, speak up, uh, on this topic. And uh, I encourage you to look at Bill's piece and uh, pass it around. This all sets up for, you know, this this whole policy and, and this debate right now, obviously, is in one of the reasons it's being called the Inflation Reduction Act, although you could argue that it really doesn't do a lot to address inflation. It's just a name, um, is, is the whole slowdown. And one of the things that we're starting to cover pretty extensively is the slowdown in in venture capital funding for startups and what that means for this climate tech movement that we've been seeing. We've had an enormous amount of money go into climate tech startups. In 2021, thousands of startups collectively raised over $50 billion from both venture and um, private equity investors. We know that things are slowing down. We know that the overall tech market has slowed down. We know that people are feeling spooked about inflation, about the stock market. Um, and, you know, this is absolutely going to have an impact on the venture capital for climate tech startups in the second half. We we know that it actually looked pretty good in the, in the first half, but we but basically the, the folks in this community are anticipating a hit. So our... Um, 
former colleague and now uh, current contributor, Katie Fehrenbacher, uh, did a piece for us this week on what this means, uh, what it means to survive and thrive, what it, what uh, startups can do to um, change the equation, you know, how, how they can make sure that the capital is going the right way, things to advice for how to negotiate a deal if you're, if you're out there doing a deal, like how, how, you know, what are the trade-offs that you might have to accept in this, in a, in a slower environment. Um, it's lots of great perspective because she has been covering this for a very long time. She, she had a front seat at the, the previous um, bubble, if you will, for the clean tech moment. And so just great perspective that she she has here in the story, um, including from some very familiar people like Jigger Shaw, who's now the loan program office head for the Department of Energy and but the longtime investor in climate tech startups. And one of the things that he that I, I love this quote from him um, that he told Katie, people who are adapting are thriving. There's no chill on the overall market. The chill is on last year's business plan. So this really, this whole sort of economic climate makes it incumbent upon the, the you know entrepreneurs that might not have that background to get that kind of business acumen and, and where they turn. So this is a, a piece that kind of hints at, at some of the possibilities. What about you, Joel? What, what's your reflection on this moment for climate tech startups? It's Groundhog Day. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could take this piece in with a, just a little bit of search and replace. And I, and I mean, absolutely mm. no disrespect to to our friend Katie Fehrenbacher, who is a fabulous journalist and a great friend of ours and partner and talent. Uh, but a lot of this could have been written in 2008 um, and probably was because this is about not about climate tech, but about um, uh, about tech companies in general. I mean, if you look at the, you know, they need to adapt, conserve cash, negotiate flat or down fundraising rounds, which means uh fundraising rounds at valuations that don't necessarily increase from the previous round. They need to adjust to rising costs of capital, look at the forms of financing outside of venture capital. You know, Raising money will be more challenging, uh, and companies will need to hit higher technical and, and market bars to maintain the valuations. Um, and, you know, we, we've seen this movie before. Um, the difference, though, is that this is not just simply cool tech that needs to, you know, the world needs to see. This is vital. There's a, a huge demand that there wasn't necessarily before on some of these technologies. And unlike the, you know, what was called the clean tech, now climate tech, the clean tech bust of 2008, 9, 10, 11, um, this, uh, there are markets and revenue uh, for a lot of these companies. It's just that they're gonna, everyone has to be more careful. We have to be more careful. I think every company, uh, you know, large and small, not just the startups, you know, are looking at conserving cash and, and you know, rethinking some uh, hiring. Although we're certainly going gangbusters at GreenBiz, but but still, you know, we we may we may you know be a little bit more careful than we would have been. But we're in boom times for our sector, and I think that's the point: is that you know, how do you manage boom times with this uh, the, this recession uh, and and inflation, the high costs of capital. This is a really interesting moment, and yeah, uh, a lot of companies won't survive. But you know, that's that's always the story with venture capital. So it, it's not that this is a nothing burger. This is a really important piece, but uh, we can learn a lot from 
companies that uh, survived. In fact, that <laughs> one might go back and look at some of those stories, not just that we covered, but that were covered in the business press during the you know 2000, let's say, 9 to 10 timeframe and seeing the kinds of advice given to companies. Um, it still holds true. You know, one of the things I agree with you totally, one of the things that, that I want to just point to as a, as a final takeaway from my perspective is the um, the buzz out there is that it's it's really the later stage climate tech companies that are going to be most challenged with the funding right now. That there is a lot of access to to the newer cap to the newer sorts of ideas, and we're seeing that. Like this week, we had like at least two green hydrogen Series A rounds, and of course, it's a little bit of a lagging, right? Because those 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 were being developed um, before the moment that we're facing now. But there is a lot of interest in in those technologies that are going to get us to the to the place that we need to be on climate and this to back back to the inflation reduction act there's a lot of money in that that could help um, if it passes so get out there and lobby or whatever the word is get out there and advocate for it that we need that we need that policy Heat waves, droughts, energy crisis, it's been happening all over and it's been happening particularly in the UK uh, where there was this, uh, last week a uh, really, really, really hot week. And here to talk about all of that is our good friend, the editor-in-chief of Business Green over in London, James Murray. Hey, James. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you doing? I know you were off last week. You were lucky enough for, uh, to be uh, at the beach on a little holiday during the heat wave, but um, uh, that was a brutal week for, for you Brits. It really was. I mean, it, it was, um, yeah, it was the week. Luckily, I wasn't on holiday during the worst of it because so, it really was at the level where people couldn't go outside. So, yeah, for those who don't know, um, the UK hit its highest ever recorded temperature level, topped 40 degrees centigrade. Um, I don't know what that is in the uh, the metrics that you use over there, but uh, suffice to say, it was just incredibly hot, dangerously hot. Uh, we had sort of red alert weather warnings saying people should uh, not go outside, not use public transport, um, you know, keep their houses as, as sheltered and closed up as possible and, and protect themselves from what, you know, what is very, very dangerous levels of heat. Uh, and obviously all part of an upwards kind of global warming trend. But these these kind of heat dome events are just particularly visceral and and disruptive to an economy. Uh, and dangerous for human health. Yeah. Well, for the centigrade challenge, uh, 40 centigrade equals 104 Fahrenheit, also known as just really, really hot. Um, but so has that changed anything? I mean, are people starting to say, oh, my God, this you know climate thing is real? Uh, here here in the States, we've had wildfires and we're having droughts. And, and we also had some significant heat waves up in the Pacific Northwest and the Southeast, all, all across the country almost. And it doesn't seem to be moving minds very much. It's just the new weather. How about there? It's, it's very hard to tell. I mean, the, the first thing to say is that the polling does suggest it does have an impact. So there was polling done in the wake of the heat wave and the sort of the already high levels of concern over climate change spiked further. Sort of as you'd expect in the immediate aftermath, uh, there is this, this, this sense of concern does get more intense. 
um, exactly as you'd expect. Um, I mean, we also had wildfires. I mean, for, for literally the first time, there was a wildfire on the edge of London on this sort of tinder dry grassland that actually burnt down some houses. So the, the papers the next day, papers that in some cases have been mocking the idea of weather warnings and saying, stop being such snowflakes, just get on with it. We, in our day, we just wore a hat and everything was fine. You know, they suddenly flipped to just like his burnt down homes. Uh, from wildfires in in East London, um, which again is just completely alien. I mean, one of the things to sort of stress here is that you know the US obviously has areas that do get very hot, but your infrastructure is built for that. Whereas whereas in a country such as ours, with a more you know with a in many ways what should be a more temperate climate, um, the buildings aren't built for it. The you know we we have no experience of wildfires whatsoever transport infrastructure is not built for it so that the rail tracks were starting to buckle in a way that rail tracks in the south of france wouldn't um because they're, they're built for those temperatures so we have this sort of infrastructure that's just not resilient to those kinds of temperatures um so there was in general this kind of awareness that hang on this is this is kind of the real impact made clear uh and yet does it really filter through uh, i think it ratchets things up a notch but in terms of actually getting policy change, getting people to think about it after the heat wave has gone. No, it is. we have this human nature problem of our shifting baselines. Um, we, we, we grow very accustomed to things that are actually incredibly weird in any historic measure. Um, and, and while it's probably strengthened arguments a bit, it certainly hasn't delivered some kind of grand wake-up call that I, I, that I suppose so many people in this space have been hoping for for years. Yeah. Well, what about the political leadership? I mean, obviously, there's a wildfire taking place in uh, number 10 Downing Street right now, and there's a, a lot of things that aren't yet settled. But uh, Boris Johnson isn't the only political leader in, in the UK. Uh, is anybody stepping up and saying, you know, look, we, we need to deal with this? Do you know what? that Again, that was one of the very strange things about it, was that just didn't happen and that hasn't happened with previous floods and other kind of weather extreme weather that could be linked to climate change there is this huge reluctance from the government from the conservative party in particular to come out and say look this is what it means we will get more of this it will become more dangerous the impact on food security in particular on on you know your health on the summers you knew as a as a child all of that will change. And there's a real reluctance to kind of use the teachable moment, if you will, and speak in those stark terms to the public. And obviously, the leadership election was going on at the same time as the heat wave. And it was, it was just almost in a completely parallel universe. There was no engagement with the, the, the scale of the crisis. Uh, the candidates are both nominally in support of net zero, but they're also talking about one of them's talking about sort of having fracking in the UK for the first time. The others talking about putting blocks on onshore wind farm development. Um, you know, there's still this kind of just this paint by numbers approach to the politics at the time when you've literally got houses burning down from wildfires. Yeah, it's, it's not all that different here where we have this uh, this potential new, uh, you know, Joe Manchin uh, certified uh, uh proposal um but it you know which does amazing things for for uh for climate change but also uh, increases the number of leases for on federal lands for oil and gas exploration but what about the business community i mean you know they if the if the roads and the railroads are buckling uh that's going to be a problem for them they rely on that kind of infrastructure are they stepping up are they speaking up are they showing up um 
I mean, they absolutely do rely on it. And I do think this is one of the big, big blind spots of the kind of the green business community. I think even amongst the most progressive organisations, the organisations with the most impressive decarbonisation plans, uh, with the most sort of advanced clean tech adoption plans, there is a real reluctance to talk about climate resilience of the infrastructure and the adaptation play uh, that, that will need to happen in concurrence with decarbonisation. Um, I, think, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think partly it's sort of an instinctual thing is that businesses like to talk about opportunities, don't they? They like to talk about the exciting new things that they're doing. They're a bit less, you know, instinctively, psychologically programmed to talk about getting into a defensive crouch and protecting yourself from threats. That doesn't feel particularly kind of capitalist to, to, to focus on the threats. It's always more about the opportunities. I think there's also a sense that this is just really hard. Um, you know, you, you can make the case for investing in new clean technologies and say, look, here's the return on investment you're going to get. Here's the, the reputational benefits you're going to get. Here's the the kind of the, the compliance benefits you're going to get. To talk about, you know, upgrading your building and spending a lot of money on it to make it more conducive to 40 degree summers um, when, you know, they're going to happen more frequently, but they're still relatively rare. It, it's a much harder sort of investment case to make, even though logic dictates you probably should still be doing it um and then also there just isn't the same level of pressure there isn't the same level of kind of campaigner pressure again because the campaigners don't particularly want to talk about resilience and adaptation because it's almost an admission of defeat it's sort of saying you know they want to keep us focused on 1.5 or 2 degrees at worst they don't want to say well hang on you should also still be preparing for 3 or worse because that's a plausible scenario and if you're building infrastructure that's going to last for 30, 40 years, it's going to have to deal with those temperatures. So it's kind of like this sort of dirty little secret for the, even the kind of progressive green movement, let alone the businesses that are sticking their heads in the sand over this stuff. Yeah, we're all trying to figure this out and we're all trying to understand, you know, what are the pressure points going forward? And it's going to be really, really interesting and hopefully uh, it'll stay nice and cool. And um, when I'm there next month and, and seeing you, I know, um, hopefully uh, you'll offer me some far less than 40 degree weather. So I look forward to that. <laughs> James Murray I is... I can't promise anything, but I, we, we live in hope. <laughs> we all do, absolutely. James Murray is the editor-in-chief of Business Green over in London. James, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Cognizant is a professional services company best known for helping corporations with their information technology needs and staffing. Based in my home state of New Jersey, the company employs more than 330,000 people around the world. About half of those associates are in India, which has suffered a series of heat waves this year exacerbated by climate change. Here to talk about Cognizant's environmental, social, and governance strategy and why employee well-being needs to be considered in the context of climate change is Sophia Mendelssohn, Chief Sustainability Officer and Global Head of ESG at Cognizant. Hey, Sophia, great to chat with you. How are you? I'm well, Heather, and thank you for having me and thanks to everyone for listening. Well, so let's start with some context. Tell us a little bit more about Cognizant's business. Sure. Cognizant helps the global 2000, the largest 2000 companies in the world with their digital transformation. That means 
will work with a client to help them transition their business model for the digital age and increasingly for the sustainability age. We see a lot of clients with net zero goals, with social commitments, with needs to go from linear to circular business models. And all of that must be supported with technology and data. That's, yeah, super important. I totally, <laughs> that's all, that's what I love writing about. Um, you've been with the company for two years, about two years. What are Cognizant's top priorities as far as ESG and sustainability go? Yeah, so I've been with Cognizant for about two years. I'm proud to be part of our board and CEO's vision of the next level of Cognizant. Cognizant as a globally recognized brand that really partners with our clients on solving their core business problems through digital technology solutions. And when they looked out all against that enterprise vision, our leadership realized they really needed to be able to consider environmental social factors in that enterprise strategy, which is where I came on um, and my role. So starting with the business, we immediately identified a need to think about climate change, both through our, reducing our own impact, but also through resilience for executing that strategy. We've rolled out a net zero goal. We've rolled out a 100% renewable goal, and we have started internal change management, as well as reporting on our climate risk. Mm-hmm. Were you, are you, the first person in this role or did you was there an existing program in place that you picked up and are advancing well cognizance always had a very strong corporate social responsibility and philanthropic set of programs and and mission i'd say what's new to what i bring to the company is really weaving that into enterprise strategy and saying more than oh we're good people, so we're good in our communities, but really saying, okay, who are business stakeholders? That's going to include prospective talent that's in school at the moment, employees or talent already in our own house, obviously clients, investors, media, communities, and regulators. Looking at that, what do we need to address versus just thinking about it on a local community level? So prior to joining Cognizant, you were with JetBlue, two very, very different businesses. What's the same and what's different as far as strategic priorities in your role as CSO, you know, between those two kinds of of industries? You know, I think for sustainability practitioners who are obsessed with sustainable outcomes, of which I am definitely one, it doesn't matter so much the industry that you apply your skill set to so much as the tools you bring to the table. And in both roles at both companies and both industries, it starts with what does the client or customer want from our brand, from our communications, from our product or solution? And then how is a lack of natural resources or an unstable environment threatening our business model? So you have a real proactive and defensive posture on any given topic, especially on climate. Now, so speaking of climate, about half of your company's employees are in a country that is already feeling severe effects from climate change. What does that mean for your operations there? And of course, I'm talking about India. Thank you for the question, Heather. And 
not just thank you because I want to talk about it. Thank you for the question because by asking that question, what you are doing is reframing the context of climate change from something that's environmental to something that's inherently human. And when we look at why businesses are so dedicated to net zero goals and attacking climate change and and corresponding solutions, it's because we see it affecting our people, right? Ourselves, our families, our associates, our teams, our clients, our communities. And there are countries like India that feel that effect first, um, that we look to first. And we think of this kind of in a chain. The first is, how do you help people get ready for this type of change? For example, with monsoons, how do you give them early information through good, strong employee communication systems? And then how do you get your buildings and facilities ready? And in these doing these two things, you both protect the individual as a person because safety is the top priority, but you also protect the delivery of the product. Now, Cognizant delivers our services through people, through people's knowledge and ability. And they can't deliver that product and that service without, without the ability to know that, okay, there might be some extreme weather coming, here's Cognizant checking in on me, here's the plan for the office, um, and here's the plan for my, for my home. I will add, Heather, one thing. We tend to think of climate as someone else's problem, right? Something that might manifest itself in a country we don't live in first. But increasingly, we see the impacts of extreme weather all over the world, not just in countries that are historically hot or humid uh, or underdeveloped. So what I would encourage sustainability practitioners in their own companies to do is also make sure that they're looking at the impact to headquarters um, and the impact in the U.S. and the U.K., EU as well. So why don't I poke into this a little bit more? And I, I would like to start, not because it's more important, but I'm just going to start with your operational considerations. You know, you mentioned doing things to the buildings. Are there are there things that, like, let, let's just take India as an example. And you mentioned also the 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 monsoons. It's not just the heat. It's also the water, the excess water. How, what does that mean as far as the strategy for green buildings or for the how, where they're even located? How, how has that changed things in the last couple of years? Can you give me an example? Any examples? Sure. What I, I would call them resilient buildings or resiliency thinking, right? Because keep in mind for a sustainability practitioner, there are always two sides to the coin. There's how I create green buildings that reduce my own energy demands and reduce my own carbon footprint, which is why we have renewable energy goals, solar panels, um, operational efficiency, new HVAC, et cetera. And then there's also preparing for the macro risk that no individual company can control or stop. Um, So what we do, what we've uh, talked about in our ESG reports is really partner with our business continuity teams and make sure that they know not just what the weather is going to be in the next couple of weeks, which they're constantly monitoring, but what the trends for the areas we have offices in are and helping them make sure that they're considering that trend as part of their investment checklist. So that when they're making decisions about where to spend what on buildings, they're also considering that climate information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, given that that 
Cognizant is a technology company. How are you using this information and then maybe with your own, with your clients? I mean, are you also coming up with services that not just support your own people, like your own operations, but other constituents in the area? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, let's go back to this theme of first reducing your own impact and then also preparing for the effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. So our clients at the Global 2000, and as any listener of this podcast will know, that means they have suites of goals and metrics that they've committed to their own customers, to their own investors that they need to meet, particularly around energy reduction. So there's one case study in retail that we've worked on that I absolutely love, which is focused on reducing food waste. And the first thing to know about this is that every year, more than 220 million tons of food is wasted globally, which is really criminal if we think about it, right? And so this large retail chain came to us talking about food waste, and we wanted to unpack, okay, why is so much food waste lost? A lot of it is due to refrigeration issues and legacy refrigeration systems. So we knew if we could fix that with an end-to-end solution, that we could reduce that retailer's food waste. We created a suite of hardware and software elements, which means we put hardware like sensors on the actual refrigerations on the client's fleet in the client's supermarkets, and then share that information with them through software, through the cloud, so that they could begin to see the energy consumption, temperature, and humidity levels in real time. That means they could send someone out to fix things better, faster, sooner through their field engineers, all of which results in less food waste. To bring it back to the human angle, I want to ask about outside the office. One final question for you. We've talked about how these factors affect your operations in the office. You also mentioned things, the way you could support employees at homes. I just want to broaden that a little bit. What is Cognizant doing to support the well-being of the communities in which it operates? So like your employees live in these communities. They're facing climate change. How can you help the communities where you do business and where your people are located? Yeah. So the first part of the answer is very practical. We have a $250 million commitment to help our employees with STEM education, their employability, their health and well-being. This broader commitment to the health of the individual and the health of the community that our associates live in is part of dealing with climate change because you need to be able to see the connection between the technology job you have and the problem you want to solve for your community when you're thinking about climate. That's exactly why we've also engaged over 50,000 associates in various sustainability trainings so that they can understand not only what Cognizant is doing with our net zero goal and our 100% renewable energy goals, but also how they can think about this topic in their own lives. Then I think one of the most important things we can do to help associates and communities prepare for the impacts of climate change is make sure that people know there are technology solutions out there and that by working at Cognizant or any other company, that they should, that they can and should have a role in solutions. The thing that really keeps me up at night, Heather, isn't that we won't solve this, it's that people will think we can't solve it. 
And if you're listening to this podcast and you work in a small or large company, the main message I want you to hear is that you should be part of the solution with your company. That if your company is not talking about how their core product or service can help the economy transition to a low carbon world or help us with the mitigating effects of climate, then ask, ask your company, what are you doing and what could my role be in that transition? Sophia, it is so great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you to your listeners, Heather. You just heard from Sophia Mendelson, Chief Sustainability Officer and Global Head of ESG at Cognizant. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. There's seven of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. You can find us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week, uh, both live from Oakland, California, with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. <laughs>